Welcome to the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. Little Way Farm and Homestead is a regenerative and educational farm in southeastern Indiana. Motivated by the Catholic faith, we strive to inspire, encourage, and support the development of homesteads and small-scale farms in faith and virtue. I'm Matthew. And I'm Carissa. We're excited for you to join us on the podcast. On this episode, we had an opportunity to meet with Brandon and Lauren Sheard. This was a great conversation that was insightful to us as we consider how to be better stewards, not just of animals while they are alive, but of the proper use and end of meat in our farm and homestead. Brandon Sheard came into traditional livestock harvesting after studying Shakespeare in graduate school. With no experience in butchery or agriculture, he quit his job at Whole Foods Market and started work on a small multi-species and pasture-based farm in the Pacific Northwest. After two years of working on the farm and managing the butcher shop, Brandon left and started Farmstead Meatsmith with his wife, Lauren, who had journeyed with him from academia to agriculture. Today, the Sheards live in northeastern Oklahoma with their nine children, teaching the art of animal harvesting and provisioning on the domestic scale. You can learn the craft of artful slaughter at farmsteadmeatsmith.com, where they host the Meatsmith memberships and post a full calendar of undiluted, hands-on classes in animal harvesting according to the traditions of the peasant home. We're excited to bring you this interview as a production of Little Way Farm and Homestead. If you're interested in helping this podcast grow and reach a larger audience, please consider leaving a review wherever you are listening. And for more information about Little Way Farm and Homestead or to contact us, please visit littlewayhomestead.com. Brandon and Lauren Sheard, welcome to the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. Thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. Yeah. Well, maybe just to kick us off, if you could provide just a bit of background about what you all do, a brief introduction to the anatomy of thrift or the farmstead meatsmith, how it started, the origins of it, and we'll go from there. Sure. <laughs> Who starts? Trip down memory lane. Yeah. Well, we are we're, we're a Catholic family. We live in the northeastern part of Oklahoma right now. But we own and operate Farmstead Meatsmith, and that is our primarily it's it's an educational class type offering where we raise animals on a domestic scale, and then we host people, we teach people who come from farm wide to harvest animals on a domestic scale, utilizing the traditional methods of from slaughtering to butchering to curing and even cooking and even husbandry, the way that they're raised. And we've been doing that since 2010, I think is the official year that we put the start date on that. And it's definitely, we've definitely angled more towards the classes and the education, but really we just have this domestic abundance when we raise animals and just very small, tiny, small scale farming. We have so much the yield is always overwhelming. It's always made sense for it to overflow into classes to, to teach people and invite them out to learn how to do it. And yeah, that's that's kind of what we've been doing for mm-hmm. a long time. In fact, I would say that, you know, it's we're converts to the Catholic faith and our our move to the land to a more agrarian rooted lifestyle was actually simultaneous with our conversion. All of that kind of happened. 2008, 2009, 2010, around that, around that time. Mm-hmm. 
What else should I say about that? <laughs> well, yeah, we became Catholic as we were kind of learning the natural law of eating well, becoming, we, we got married in 2008 and got pregnant right away with Wallace in 2009. We had him and that process of having a child, learning how to eat well and, you know, keep ourselves healthy, not just with food, but with natural medicine, like the whole way of learning how to exist as a family, as healthy as we could. That brought us to the faith, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't talk about it as much early on. We just weren't there yet. And we were learning so much. We just, we thought it was enough just to talk about bacon <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and how to slaughter a pig. Well, you know, and as we've grown in our faith, we've, we're, we, we just find that more interesting now. <laughs> so yeah. we talk about the faith a little bit more now, but it all is still rooted in family life, good eating, good household management. I would say bacon is a good starting place too. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't like bacon? <laughs> well, there's a lot really to unpack even in the beginning there. I'm interested in starting with that idea of traditional methods of butchery and what that looks like, even maybe considering, you know, Lauren, you mentioned the natural law and the ideas there that might have prompted a discussion or an interest in the Catholic faith as well. But when you say things like traditional methods of butchering and curing, what what does that really refer to? Or what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a good question. It's specific. So primarily, it's all on the domestic scale. So the traditions that we we haven't really received, that haven't really been passed down, it takes some research to find them, to excavate them again. You're, you're well on your way if you simply do it on a domestic scale. And by that, I mean you slaughter, you harvest what you can raise in your yard. So right there, you've just begun 90% of the content of what a, a traditional method would be just by extracting yourself and your consumption from the centralized production of that food. So just that alone, slaughtering a pig or any animal in your backyard with simple tools, seasonally, you will stumble in serendipitously into the traditional methods of your of your forebears. And so basically what it means is doing things on that small scale ordered towards feeding the family. So not necessarily ordered towards uh, mass production, right? And, and making the most. It's not ordered towards trade. It's ordered towards feeding humans that have immortal souls. So small scale, but then also the traditional methods, you could imagine them just remove all modern technology. And once again, you will trip into the traditional methods. So curing becomes not just a means of flavoring meat, but preserving it. And preserving means your bacon, your hams, the things that you cure never spoil in ambient household temperatures wherever you live. So you apply salt to the meat. After some amount of time, you rinse it off and then you hang it. And that meat keeps until the apocalypse or you eat it, whichever comes first. So that's total a total shift in the way we cure. And, and then I, I would say, you know, another element of traditional harvesting is 100% yield. There's no waste. It can all become food for humans. That's the highest and best end of any backyard creature that we raise for food. And there's no part of them that you should throw away. You know, maybe you pick your battles and you, and you choose certain things because ultimately you have, you have higher goods that you need to aspire to. 
and you subordinate the goods of the farm to that, but um, it's less wasteful, really. Um, and then as far as the concrete traditions, you're excavating them because they vary from region to region throughout the world, all over Europe. It's all different. It's all climactically dependent and geographically dependent. And it's dependent upon the kind of seasons you have and the kind of yield that your ground can supply you with, um, your earth and its fertility. So a lot of it is uh, doing research in, uh, around climates and regions that are similar to your own. Uh, or trying to find some old neighbors that can teach you some cool old stuff. Just listening to how you're explaining all of this, it reminds me how, as we've learned about homesteading and raising our own foods, it's not only just discovering the ways of our ancestors and how they how they carried out life and feeding themselves, but in a lot of ways, it's shown me this beautiful, intricate design that God created in the way to nourish us. And it's almost like rediscovering his intentional purpose in feeding and nourishing us. And I, I just, I personally have really enjoyed breaking down all of what we're used to with the culture of food and centralized groceries and just finding God in the middle of all of that as well. So if you could start by taking us through the stewardship of husbandry, raising the animals and what that looks like and how you have found maybe not what people were used to now, but how people in the past have raised and properly stewarded the life of these animals. Yeah, I think that that's been a, a learning experience for us. And it's really started just with docility to the natural order. So we didn't know it at the time, but 10 years ago or more when we started on this journey, but there is a natural order. And like you say, it is intended by the creator. And so if, if we're in a state of grace, we're united to God in charity, then we love his works. We love his order and the, the way he has ordered the world and creatures and our cooperation with them. And so it's, uh, it's constantly been a, we're, I've always, like, even at the beginning, when we first met, um, we found that we, there were disordered things that were just taken for granted in, in relationships. And when people come together and, you know, cutting off, short circuiting their fertility and all of these things that, we wouldn't have articulated at the time, but they violate the natural order, the divine intent that is inscribed in nature that we can actually perceive with our senses reliably. You know, and I feel like all of modernity is marshaled against us to say, well, either there isn't an order, the, the primary substrate is total chaos, or there might be an order, but you do not have the ability to perceive it. In truth, you can just see the phenomena, not the actual thing itself. And both of those things are, are totally false. <laughs> you know, St. Thomas says all knowledge comes through the senses. So we can actually perceive it. And, and when your pig um, rebels against something on your farm and introduces disorder, you are accurately seeing disorder. Like you can go ahead and respond accordingly. Um, and uh, so a lot of it has been 
um, trying to be docile to the nature of each animal because uh, we have, you find it whether you want to or not. There's this really benevolent effect of being in the country, being around livestock and animals is that um, strange little personal fantasies that aren't true about the way things are don't stand up very long. Like pigs don't tolerate pig fantasies. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you treat them a certain way, they're going to rebel against that. Mm -hmm. And so you actually have to discipline yourself to perceive their nature, their habit of being. And this goes for your grasses, you know, your pigs, your, how does your corn behave seasonally? And um, you have to believe that you can actually perceive their nature and act in accordance with it. And I don't know, I feel like for us, it's been many years of doing that. And then we get to supply the final cause mm -hmm. to all of these things, to our little, you know, kingdom here. And the final cause, the final purpose, what does it all serve? Mm -hmm. And if we can have that first thing first, if we can have that rightly ordered, then the means to get there become so much more intelligible and it removes so much conflict and ambiguity about how to attain that mm -hmm. or what to do day to day because you have the final cause in view. I need to feed my mm -hmm. children. What would you say about that? Yeah, the final cause is huge. And to go back to your original question about stewardship and to tie it in with what you were saying, I think it's really important that we understand that we can't really steward well if we're not, like you said, in that state of grace, because we're not going to see all the cues that nature gives us to tell us, okay, this is disordered over here. We need to order it. You know, if your pigs are out of hand, you're going to do whatever you can to not have to fix that. Cause that might take some work <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, or I, Maybe it's even like uh, it could be on a small level. Like right now we have an unruly duck that's messing up our geese and we're kind of just biting with it because they're going to be killed in two weeks anyway, you know? So we're like, okay, it's not worth the upheaval of killing this duck right now. You know, so that is like one level of disorder, but then there's also like the higher level of disorder that can happen within a family if you are selling your soul for your homestead project because you're not seeing well enough to go, you know, I'm making this project more important than spending time with my kids or spending or listening to my husband maybe and his judgment or whatever. And all this comes back to being in that state of grace so that you can see properly and and then have the strength of will to react accordingly um, and then have your appetites ordered so that you can deny yourself what needs to be denied in the moment. And all this comes back to seeing well so that you can steward well. And I'm saying so much all at once, but I, I, I think we've been doing this long enough to where we've seen families get really enthusiastic and excited about homesteading and that's wonderful because it is the best way to live little by little incrementally as we all crawl out of modernity, but then they burn out because the darkness hits and then they don't know what to do because they're misprioritizing things. You know, they're spending too much time with their pigs rather than their family or whatever the project is, you know, I mean, 
We yeah. all want to get there, but we also have to keep our head above water and prioritize being in that state of grace. Yeah, especially yeah. since the homesteading life in the modern era starts with having discipline over your appetites. Right. Because we're doing this crazy artificial thing. The easiest thing is to drive two, four minutes out the door and get your food at the grocery store. Yeah. That's the easy thing. We're going a, a, upstream. Yeah, yeah, right. And so it, it starts with a kind of temperance, you know, an ordering right. of the passion. So you actually get your food the hard way and you don't just buy what you want. You you prepare mm -hmm. and consume what you can produce, mm -hmm. what you can produce. But then at the same limiting. time, not getting too anxious and feverish to eat the purest thing <laughs> while your household is falling apart. Because mm -hmm. we've seen that, you mm -hmm. know, we're like... We've done that. We've yeah. done that. We've been there, yeah. <laughs> and we haven't seen very well. And it actually took the traditional faith to really get us back in line, learning the moral teaching of St. Alphonsus Liguori and Francis de Sales and obviously Thomas Aquinas and, and learning, Oh, I have to get these things in order. And it took some good priests to really tell us, to teach us what even being in a state of grace means. And, um, you know, going through the hard work of going through a, a rigorous examination of conscience and it's not the point is not to be too scrupulous, but to like, just make sure I've got my priorities straight with justice, temperance, prudence, and fortitude, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then charity, hope, and faith as well, making sure I'm, and then the duties of state in life, you know, it's way more important that I'm teaching my children on a day-to-day -day basis and not pumping out five podcasts a week. Cause that's my temptation is like, Oh, I just love homesteading. I want to talk about it all the time, <laughs> but we end up doing one every like couple of months, you know, and that's just an example. Maybe my temptation is to make the perfect homemade laundry soap, which I have totally abandoned doing anymore. You know, <laughs> I used to, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I, you're hitting on something that I think we, we come across as, or we feel as we look around, not only in the way that we started homesteading, but also is really a big concern of ours when we talk to people who are interested in homesteading is that there are some barriers, firstly, in moving away from you know modern society and the idea, even the, the, the mindset of modernity towards homesteading from a Catholic perspective, but also in that much of it, it seems to be so hyper-focused on everything outside of the home. And that becomes, I think, particularly troublesome because what you often see, especially is promoted through social media and becomes a little bit more viral and what, you know, the conferences typically seem to lean towards is all of the activities that happen outside, which is important. It's necessary. It's integral to the homesteading lifestyle. But it's what happens, I think, inside the home, which becomes often the second priority to many people. And what really, I think that kind of sums up is what does the home look like? What is the order of the home? Is there a liturgical life within the home? Does the home and the way that it functions follow a liturgical rhythm through the seasons, just like nature follows seasons? The church has a liturgical calendar. Does the home follow a similar mentality? When you're out, you know, maybe considering how people could begin to set up a foundation for where a homestead would actually thrive that's ordered properly, where maybe they could skip through some of the first years of struggling and reprioritizing and deprioritizing. Where do you recommend people begin? 
is it out is it outside is it with the animals is it inside with a routine and a rhythm for the day what does that look like yeah <laughs> so that is a great question i think it's uh you start with the duties of your state in life mm -hmm. and you know what those are by examining what you have been sacramentalized in mm -hmm. so you know if you've been baptized um and confirmed especially if you have received the holy sacrament of marriage matrimony there are thankfully really concrete actionable duties that go along with that and the advantage to starting there is that you have supernatural aid supernatural divine life to help you do those things and if those are number one it's you know it's just like what our lord says seek first the kingdom of god and then all these things will be added unto you and that those little the, those simple daily duties um they they are the ones that actual holiness and order for your whole homestead is going to build be built upon and just like you said, it, start, it starts inside the home and then it will ripple to the outside. And you can see that in all of Catholic culture too. You know, you can basically track the priorities of a society by the way that a medieval town was built, right? You've got the, everyone put all of their resources into the church, some of which took 650 years to build. And everything is centered around that altar, which is all ordered towards the presence of our Lord on that altar in the tabernacle. And then out from that, you get the, the immense church building, tallest building in the town, and then the town square and the market, and then the homes and then the fields and everything is centered on the church. Um, and you see that across all of Europe. And I feel like that we echo that same order uh, in the home. And so I, yeah, I think the best place to start is the duties of your state. And if you're, if you're married, it's, it's, it, hopefully, you know, it's clear what those duties are to your spouse. Um, but even before that, like you need your duty to, to God to save your own soul and then the soul of your spouse and then your children. And if you're, which always involves, you know, being open to having as many children as God would give you and educating them. And um, when you tie into those duties primarily, then the backyard pig will actually serve you as opposed to you serving it. Yes. Trying to fulfill some ideal of like domestic tranquility uh, in a disordered way. Because here's the thing, if you're starting with, you know, the backyard pig in terms of the prioritization of fulfilling your duties, uh, then that amateurish zeal that got you there in the first place of the quaint, beautiful homestead, ordered gardens, you know, and everything lovely and productive and fertile, which is a good, your zeal for that is going to wear out. It's going to burn out and uh, it's not going to last. And so you actually need more than just an emotional delight or delectation for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It actually has to come under the heading of justice and obedience to God to, to order your, your, your property, your land that way. And you can do that when it is part of a fulfillment of the duties of your state. And then you get supernatural grace to help you do that. Because mm -hmm. I think we need grace even just to fulfill our natural duties. That's right. And um, 
it comes from that that prioritization. I, I think you're right. Absolutely. You start with the present moment, your duties of state. And for me, that definitely means in the home. You know, I wake up every morning, I do my morning offering, whatever prayers I can eke out before I start getting smacked in the face with reality of eight children, you know, and that's usually where I end up is in the home at the beginning of the day, in the home at the end of the day. Mm. <laughs> and once in a while I can like the, the stars align and uh, like right now, Carissa, you know, you're able to like venture out into the world for half a second with your husband, you know, and those are delightful moments and I love them, but they are very few and far between, you know, um, I'll, you know, going to Sunday mass is a big deal <laughs> or just going and, and going to a store to pick something up. Well, actually, now that my sons are older, I am venturing out more because like we just went and bought a, a new musical instrument yesterday. And so we got to go to this really neat boutique shop in Tulsa with just my 14 year old and I. And that was so just such a beautiful afternoon. But I don't have that every day. So I go out in the world, do my duty, which is to help my son, you know, along in his studies and then come back, keep doing the humdrum. That's my life for Brandon. His has to be a little bit more exterior. His has to be a little bit more visible, I would say, like as the man, as the husband. And so that's where our roles do separate a little bit because he's got to earn the daily bread. But ultimately, it is still for the home, mm -hmm. you know. It's not like you've got some grand mission to change the world. It's just this does happen to be what's paying the bills. Yeah. So we're doing it right now. Yeah. But like we're ready to chuck it in a moment. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> if it stops earning our daily bread. Or yeah. Or if it if it supplants the greater good in any way. That. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point, though, on the prioritization of that and, and what that looks like. Um, because in some ways, you know, the, the bringing in of income is almost a means to an end and the end should be the support and the development of the family society. Exactly. And if it's not doing that, or if it's, you know, certainly this is not a commentary. There's very difficult situations in life and there's very nuanced situations in, in the modern economic life that we all still find ourselves a part of. But if it's ordered at least mentally in that way, I think it affords an opportunity to be more receptive to grace and at least understand why it is that you do what you do instead of, you know, just spending all of your time in prayer. Because ultimately, even though that seems to be a, a phenomenal good and, and more indicative of the beatific vision, we are here on earth and we have things that we are called to do and vocations to live. And the way that we engage in external activities and support our households seems to be wrapped up in there somewhere. I don't know how to theologize it, but it's somewhere. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And to steal something else from Dr. Malosh, <laughs> he says that, you know, we are, like you say, our highest good is contemplation of God. And we are all called to that. Like that's, that's not just for a special few. Um, is to behold the face of God for all eternity. And we can actually partake in that a little bit now through contemplation. And But the thing is, we're not just disembodied minds. We are hylomorphic. We, we have the powers of the soul, intellect, and will, but we also inextricably, indivisibly, you know, have bodies. And so supporting the good of the body in an ordered way, it's not even contrary 
to the contemplation. Yeah. It's like, no, that you're augmenting it. That's when it's ordered properly, you're supporting the body so that you can contemplate God, so that you can mm-hmm. support the soul because it's essential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just by our very nature. And you get to a point too in prayer and grace where you are you are praying as you're working, very Benedictine kind yeah. of thought. But you know, you're doing your focus on your duties and then oh I get to come up for air for a minute, you know, breathe out a little prayer to God and reunite yourself, reorient yourself and then go on to the next task. And it, it can, you know, reduce a lot of that feverish um you know, like I got to produce kind of mm-hmm. mentality and it keeps you united to God, even though, yes, I'm probably not going to be a Teresa of Avila <laughs> in my prayer, you know, and that's okay. I'm not supposed to be. So I trust that. And I pray as I can, as I'm working. Um, yeah. Picking yeah. myself up when I fall. And then we do have some ordered as much as we can in a family of eight you know, morning offerings and mm-hmm. oh, yeah. consecrating Plen- the day. Plenty of those. <laughs> yeah, throughout the day, some yeah. set prayers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think our understanding of what ordered prayer time looked like with young children around especially went from a thought of how it ought to look to how it actually practically can look, Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. which has yeah. been very challenging to me. Uh, as, uh, But it's also been very humbling and I'm pleased and uh, with with what often it looks like I've just learned to understand that there is a practical side and and that's beautiful too because it is a part of our existence as humans and somewhere in there is a, a distinction um, I'm sure about what God wants to you know the family to look like which is beautiful as well yes but that may be an interesting point too to consider. Because a lot of people right now are beginning and you all encounter people, I'm sure, all the time who are not on the land or they're looking to join, get, you know, get to the land or they're beginning their homesteading journey or they're early on in it. What do you think those early days or the early years, what can people hope or strive to accomplish maybe in that time as they establish their homestead, considering that potentially it's not just about their experience, but generations to come? Yeah, I think that I, I find that the the nitty gritty of actually homesteading, the act of growing a lot of food, lots of vegetables, of raising livestock, that if that stuff is actually relatively simple. People can do that. That doesn't take too, I don't know, it doesn't take a prolonged, torturous educational process. You can figure that out. Even just growing vegetables for a season or a year you pretty quickly will learn everything you need to know about growing vegetables in that year. You've pretty much got it. And then it becomes a discipline, you know, from then on to do it well. So I, I always think, especially when you're looking at it, maybe you're living in the city and you're idealizing the, the, the growing of food production and living out in the country, it helps to know, I think, that all of the practical elements that are super intimidating or maybe exciting to you of, oh boy, I got to kill my own pig. I don't know about that. That, that is actually the easy stuff. It is, it is simple. You can totally do that. This, all of those arts, raising your own food, harvesting your own livestock, that is the prowess of peasants. It's only recently that that has become isolated in the centralized food production system and fragmented as a craft. But once you see the whole thing beginning to end a year of vegetable growing, eight months of raising out a pig, it is, 
It is very simple. And so those things will come quickly. And I think that the things that will take some time and might be unexpected is the discipline that's involved. Mm. And I always tell people like the killing a pig is easy. The challenge is disciplining yourself to eat all that you get <laughs> from the pig. Yeah. And it sounds silly because it's like, well, who wouldn't want to eat home-reared pork? Like it is absolutely delicious. The fat is sweet and wonderful. It's not cloying and bitter. It's like a not just a difference in degree, but in kind from any kind of pork or meat you can buy from the store. It is so delicious. But just by the raw fact that you're doing it at home, you're going to have way more meat than you know what to do with and way more textures than you know what to how to handle in the kitchen. And so actually starting to regard food and eating as a discipline is huge. And it, otherwise you're going to waste a ton of stuff and it's going to be a burden when you do kill that pig. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I have a four pound liver. What the? Mm -hmm. And I have a head that weighs 15 pounds mm -hmm. and I have a prosciutto, you know, you cure it for, it hangs for two years and it's delicious, but you find it's actually really difficult to eat this thing. Mm -hmm. And it's because part of the commercial production of food has made it just basically pre-chewed. We're all eating baby food. Mm -hmm. It's all just one step removed from a feeding tube of smoothie just straight <laughs> down our gullet. You know, as far as how much work it takes. Uh, and yeah. so you, you're, you're going to have to get used to the idea of working for your food and then working to consume it. So you're consuming not based on, oh, I want to prepare this recipe tonight. Mm -hmm. you're, not, you're not consuming it mm -hmm. based on your likes and dislikes necessarily, but mm -hmm. on what is ripe and ready and abundant at that moment. Yeah. Eat that. Yeah. And so part of the discipline of eating is not just that temperance, which of course is only going to be strengthened by fasting. That's like step one, learn how to fast. Mm -hmm. But you got to learn how to cook and treat cooking yeah. as a serious discipline. Yeah. Uh, as a virtue. And fortunately, it's easy. It's simple. It's not complicated. Because the quality of our ingredients are so poor from the grocery store, cooking has become complicated. But when you're starting with home root ingredients that are already delicious, it's a much simpler process. And so I tell people that I'd rather have a skilled home cook butcher my pig than a seasoned conventional butcher. That's right. Because she knows the final cause, mm -hmm. which is the family table and how to prepare it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, step one before jumping out there into onto your land or homesteading is gain the discipline of eating. Eat as a discipline, which involves fasting and temperance and learn how to cook it. Temperance, not just in withholding yourself from eating, but doing justice, I guess, to the food that's in front of you and taking the time to treat it well. What's that line from the that famous chef? Take care of your vegetables or they will. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what is it? If you, um, it's something like if you try to control your ingredients too much, they will misbehave. They will misbehave. Which is so true, especially or, when you're starting with good ingredients. Yeah, or like if you're afraid of them, they will oh, know and, and misbehave. misbehave. That's what that, it is. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. And so, especially as the housewife, I've really had to like shift my mind and just grab the bull by the horns and okay, I have 20 pounds of bones in front of me. What am I going to do with this? You mm -hmm. know? And then, okay, here's a big stock pot. I'm going to deal with this in the right way. And 
or I've got a leg that wasn't turned into a ham, but okay, so what am I going to do with this? And I have to, I have to learn a little bit. Mm -hmm. Temperance involves not just eating the thing that's easy and pleasurable Mm -hmm. right away, but I'm going to use what's in front of me. Yeah. Get excited about acquiring tastes, which are really the only ones worth having. Because you can, you have absolute mastery over your own food preferences. It's not the other way around. Yeah. You can choose what to like or not like. Right. uh, Literally by developing the habit of eating that thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We talked a lot about that was one of the, probably one of the sharpest differences between the way that we were living in the city versus when we moved to the country. And Carissa did a lot of work to kind of help us develop that discipline of eating and learning to eat whole animal products, beginning with larger you know, cuts. And uh, I think it started with whole chicken, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But even simply understanding how do you take a full animal and how do you use that full animal in your cooking? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a challenge, I think, for a lot of people, because otherwise what ends up happening is they harvest an animal and they turn it into grocery store-esque cuts. And then they find uh, there aren't as many grocery store-esque cuts on this one animal. (laughs) There's a lot of other meat uh, availability on this animal, but there's not a lot. There's there's not as many chuck roasts as I would typically go to the store to buy. It just doesn't exist on the same animal. Yeah. Yeah. We've had the experience of, so, uh, customers saying, where's my spare ribs? It's like, they're in there. You only get about a pound and a half of them for per side of pork. Mm. You know, <laughs> they just couldn't believe it. That's all they come with. <laughs> what is that? Maybe like when you all first started, I think you mentioned 2010 timeline. Was that a journey in learning how to use that full animal? Or was that something that you all either maybe through growing up or other uh, training had already acquired? Yeah, so we have zero training. We have negative training. Uh, <laughs> we had to unschool yeah, ourselves first. Yeah, we did. Yeah, so both totally just grown up in suburbia, you know, totally divorced from any food production of any kind. Um, and it was, the, the path really started with the culinary element, with learning how to cook. Um, I worked on a farm, and uh, but I was more on the retail end of that farm Uh, I was running the farmer's markets. We were bringing fresh, not frozen, but fresh meat to the farmer's markets. And we were slaughtering all the animals ourselves, which means we, we just like you say, we had everything, not just the geometric grocery store cuts. And on a small scale farm production like that, it is suicide to throw away 60% of the animal, which is what you do if you're only going for those grocery store style cuts. There's so much more there. So... I had to teach our customers at the farmer's market how to cook those things, which means I had to learn how to cook them. And that was the beginning for me. And it was learning how to braise, pan, fry, and roast, and then communicating that to customers, which is fortunately, there's, those are the only three recipes for all meat cookery. You just got to learn how to braise, pan, fry, and roast. You don't need 101 recipes for meat cooking, just three. And there's no part of any carcass that you can't make delicious if you know how to braise, pan, fry, and roast. No part, your feet, tails, ears, all of it. You got it covered. And when uh, I would teach customers this, they would buy what they are unaccustomed to, very expensive, fresh meat from the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. 
with a high price tag and they would go home and they prepare it that way and they come back the next week and say that's the best thing i ever tasted it's like i know it's quality it's quality meat it was husbanded well it's harvested well and you cooked it simply and so that was that was really my starting point is i learned to cook it and then because that is the final cause of livestock is the family kitchen and cooking it well and so it was easy to work backwards from that not easy it just took you know a little discipline and no formal education to work backwards from that to not just how to kill the animal, but even how to raise it. Um, because then you start to learn about flavor and how beef or pork or lamb can taste. And it is nothing like what you can purchase. It's not even on the same plane. Mm -hmm. And so when you know what it can taste mm -hmm. like, and you know how to cook it, then you become the authority on how it ought to be harvested and grown because you have the final cause in view. There is no other standard. You can totally reject the poster on the butcher shop wall with like those cylindrical denuded geometric shapes. They come from, it's silliness, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. If you can harvest that pig or cow or whatever it is, and then you prepare its meat and you can't even quite remember what that cut was called, but it's delicious. Then you butchered properly. You did it all properly because that is the final cause. Um, so that was my beginning. It really was cooking and getting used to the idea that cooking is going to be a substantial part of our life and of our day, day to day. We're mm -hmm. going to be cooking a lot. Mm -hmm. It is, um, it's just the continued husbandry, the continued husbandry of that animal, the continued harvest of it. Mm -hmm. It's not just, um, I don't know, a final step that should take up a minimal part of the day. We spend a lot of time mm -hmm. cooking. Mm -hmm. Do you find that, you know, much of the conversation that we have around homesteading and starting and learning, and I love the phrasing, unschooling and unlearning some of it too. Do you think it is more so about, you know, these first generation of people who are adults effectively or the older children who are having to go through that more difficult process and the children who are coming through the homesteading lifestyle that it's really not as impactful to them because it's what they know. Because that's been our experience thus far. Uh, and our children help us with butchering. And I think people come over and they see them do that and they're shocked. Like, does that not bother them? Are they not, like, are they okay with that? Uh, one of our, our oldest daughter, she's just, she is the uh, chicken foot cutter offer. I don't know why. That's just her thing. She loves it. It's a it. fun task. It's, I think she can accomplish it easily too. So she gets a sense of satisfaction, but she's always like, I want to do the chicken feet. Yeah. And all our children are around us and they seem to, I, I even hesitate to say they seem not to be phased because it seems to imply that they would be phased, mm -hmm. but they're not. And they seem totally not just fine with it, but they seem strengthened by the fact that they are a part of the harvesting process. Is that a similar experience that you all have? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, they definitely have to learn to be repelled by an animal harvest. That's taught. Um, and I remember our first three children born are boys. And so boys, you know, they're just born with guns and sticks and spears and swords in their brain. That's just how they are <laughs> enter the world. And uh, so there was no, not a moment of hesitation at the harvesting of animals. And especially since they're exposed to it so young, it's like, you know, 
uh, mom and dad put us to bed at night and they kill pigs in the day. And it's just, the, <laughs> those, you know, those are the things that happen. And I remember, you know, uh, my son Wallace, like he, when he was little, he would just get gleeful, you know, yeah. three or four when we'd kill a pig. Cause he would feel the energy. It is a big thing. It's like, you know, it's deep breath. We're about to start a lot of work. You know, we have to endeavor to receive everything this pig is going to give us, which is lots of preparation in the household, getting ready to to do the slaughter. So he feels all of that. And I remember he was like jubilant right after I shot this one pig. He was like four years old. And in typical boy fashion, he was, I, I took the shot. It took a while to get a, a perfect target set up and waiting. And, you know, I'm very conscientious. I want the shot to be perfect. You know, I don't want to have to shoot the pig multiple times. That's always a disaster. And so this is like my brand. Like I'm the guy that kills pigs humanely. That's how I, that's how I do. <laughs> and we had people over and I shot this pig and my son immediately. He's like three or four, four. I think he was two. Wow. Yeah, too. He was speaking pretty well, too. Yeah. He's like, hey, pig, you glad you're dead? <laughs> and I'm like, wow. <laughs> Whose child is this? <laughs> but it was great. Okay, yeah, he was three or four on yeah. that one. I thought you were going to say the other one. Oh, yeah. When he was two. On my back. In yeah. Ergo. When he was yeah. little, little, like teeny tiny. His vocab was much smaller. Yeah. And he goes. It's a shot. The shot yeah. happens. Bang. Yeah. And you just hear Wallace going, ow. <laughs> well, no, before that, he was saying. Well, hang on. Yeah. He goes, ow. Yeah. Go, go, go. Yeah. <laughs> because right after you shoot the pig, you want to stick it quickly. Yes. And he, he, he knew, because you want to get the proper yeah. bleed out, exsanguination of the pig. <laughs> yeah. And he can feel that. Like, yeah. Ow. Go, go. Now it's time to stick it. So anyway, all of that to say, they do get it. And now Wallace is 14 and he's got a steer head with almost six foot spread tip to tip on the horns sitting in my shop right now, bleeding on the floor because <laughs> uh, he's going to, from five days ago, he's going to turn it into a mount. He's, yeah. he's going to boil it. He's going to pull the horns off, clean the skull. It's going to be beautiful. So he's already done it once. So this yeah. is the second time around. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, they definitely gain the habit. They process it in a different way. Um, another son of ours, Simon, when he was little, he was starting to pick up on how Brandon killed turkeys, um, poultry. <laughs> Should I share this one? Yeah, it's great. And he goes, Daddy, when you kill a turkey, this is what you do. It's okay. It's okay. Shing! Yeah. <laughs> Again with the sword. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he just understands like calm, serene, yeah. and then quick. Before the slaughter yeah. and then make the kill quick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, we, it's, I'm happy to hear that because it's been our similar experience. Sometimes with our children, we're like, hey, maybe we should tone it down a little bit. Like, yeah. you need to, you're getting a little bit too excited about it, or especially when they um, will share with other people, like their grandparents, hey, guess what yeah. we're doing? And, and yeah. sometimes it's like, I'm so happy that you all understand and appreciate. And, and frankly, that I think as they get older, they'll understand like the weight of it and like the, yeah. the applications of it and what's really Absolutely. going on. But that they're excited about being welcomed into this mystery of life in that way. And it's very encouraging and exciting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They know the fruit of it, which is banqueting and feasting yeah. and abundance and they see the beauty of that in the at the dining table, and it's all connected. 
But yeah, like you said, like it's actually not for me to make the death connection for them. They will get it. They get it naturally, yeah. and they have their own moment of meditating on it, you know. And they, so I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, I would say it's even appropriate them for them to be sad. Sure. You know, when they some of yeah. some of our children have been sad at a particular animal death, and it's like, yeah. It would be an ordered response. Yeah. Wallace, Death is bad. Yeah. Okay. So on the grander scale, Wallace is 14 now, not to belabor this point, but we just killed this mammoth um, longhorn, which Steer. is a huge story in itself. And um, you had to, you had to drag it mm-hmm. on the ground With from, the tractor. from the kill pen to the underneath our slaughter area. Anyway, Wallace has just read the Iliad. And I don't know if it was me or him, but I was like, Wallace, what does that remind you of? And it was like, for me, mm-hmm. it was dragging Hector's body mm, behind his, the chariot. Big, glorious mm. hero of a beast, you know, yeah. which is what the, the longhorn was. And that's anyway, it was fresh in our minds, but it was like, we're just watching. It was just so majestic and it mm. was dead. Yeah. And it was slightly worth grieving over. Yeah. You know. Mm. Before the harvest. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, I know we've got some children who are now running all around us, and I think we're close at the time here. So I just want to say thank you immensely for joining us again. This was wonderful, and I really appreciate you being here, and thank you for the work that you do. If you want to give a plug for how people can find you. and Yeah, you can find us at farmsteadmeetsmith.com. And we have lots of classes up right now. In fact, we have some spaces in the family pig class, which is a three-day extensive harvest, totally hands-on, small group. People go home knowing how to do it on their own is the idea with simple kit. And that's uh, we've got dates for that in November and December. And then we're even going to do a, a really cool class down in Louisiana on how to do homestead scale duck harvesting and raising and actually produce your own foie gras, which is uh, only a terrible practice insofar it is, as it is commercialized and industrialized. It used to be the housewife backyard source of fat, poultry fat. And so um, all of that will be covered down in Louisiana with another great Catholic family, mm-hmm. the backwater foie gras. So lots of things going on on the website particularly with classes. And we've got our online membership, the Meatsmith membership that you can find on the uh, website as well with an archive of over 50 videos detailing all of this, all the processes. We're on Instagram as well. Um, If you're on social media, Mm -hmm. Instagram is the best place to find us there. Mm -hmm. And then our own YouTube page, which um, hosts our podcast. Like I said, we don't get one out very regularly, but when we can, Mm -hmm. we, we sit down and try to chat like this. So. That's great. Well, thank you both for being here and uh, we look forward to talking in the future. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about this episode and be sure to tune in next week.